You're listening to TIP. Hi, folks. I'm really delighted to introduce today's guest, a legendary investor named Tom Gaynor. Tom joined the Markel Corporation back in 1990 to manage the company's investment portfolio. He's been working at Markel ever since and is now the CEO, overseeing something like 20,000 employees. Over the last three decades, he's played a starring role in transforming Markel from a tiny, somewhat obscure insurance company based in Virginia into a powerful global conglomerate that now ranks at number 289 on the Fortune 500 list of America's largest corporations. Markel's success story is one of steady, incremental progress sustained over a long period of time. That's also Tom Gaynor's story. When I wrote about him in my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, I described Tom as the king of constancy. He's a person who plugs away day after day, year after year, decade after decade, in a thoughtful, diligent, consistently sensible way. Tom once told me, if you want the secret to great success, it's just to make each day a little bit better than the day before. What's fascinating to me is that this emphasis on steady, constant, doggedly persistent progress has paid off to a spectacular degree over decades. When Markel went public back in 1987, its stock was valued at a little more than $8 per share. Since then, it's risen to more than $1,200 per share. That gives you a sense of the extraordinary power of long-term compounding. As Tom Gaynor sees it, you really don't need to take extreme risks to build significant wealth over time. It's better, in his opinion, to take a more prudent, middle-of-the-road approach that's more sustainable, instead of doing anything so aggressive that you might risk getting knocked out of the game. I remember Tom once describing himself to me as radically moderate. But there's another reason why Tom is one of the most admired investors of his generation. He's not only a grandmaster at building long-term wealth, he's also a terrific human being. As I think you'll hear in this conversation, he's an extremely likable and good-natured person, full of charm and humor and amusing stories, not to mention a lot of practical wisdom about how to achieve success in an honest and trustworthy and joyful way. I've met a lot of famous investors over the years who lead slightly narrow and stunted lives because they're brilliant at making money, but not so hot when it comes to things like building happy relationships with their families and friends. Tom is very different. He's successful in his professional life, but he's also really successful in his personal life. So I've come to regard him as one of the best role models of all in the investment world. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life. Hi, everyone. It's a particular pleasure to welcome our guest, Tom Gaynor, who's one of the great long-term investors of our time. Tom, it's lovely to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your hospitality. Glad to be with you. It's great to see you always. I wanted to start by asking you about your individual retirement account, which I gather you set up when you were something like 14 years old. Can you tell me what possessed you to do that? And also what the story of your IRA 
illustrates about the power of long-term investing? Because I guess this is what, this is 44 years ago now that you set it up? 47 or so by, okay. by now. It has indeed gotten to the hockey stick uh, stage of things if you were to, to chart it out. But to the backstory, you and I have talked about this before. When I was 14 years old, the law was passed that created individual retirement accounts. And at that point, uh, I was working part-time from time to time in my father's liquor store. And I remember I made about $750 that year and I put all of it in the IRA. And I don't think the tax burden would have been very much on $750, but I, I did read the Wall Street Journal and I was sort of aware of things. And without a second's hesitation, it just seemed to me that, well, that's a spectacular thing to do is to put that away. And literally every year since then, for many, many years, the limit was $2,000 a year. And I don't know if I made $2,000 in the subsequent year when I was 15 or whether to be 16 before I was fully able to fund the $2,000, but I did. And that account has been a marvelous sort of tool and teaching device to sort of let, let some winners run. And it, it's, I mean, it's, at this moment, that IRA, which just had $2,000 a year put into it is 10% of my net worth. So it's a, it's a meaningful thing. Wow. And what was in it? What did you do originally? And then how did it change over the years once you actually really knew what you were doing? Well, I really don't remember what the first stock I bought would have been, but it, it would have been a stock. And I have no memory of any of the specific investments I made all the way along until such time as we got to the uh, maybe late 80s. And it was the time when interest rates were meaningfully higher than what they are right now. I mean, 16, 17, 18%. And I believe it was Merrill Lynch who started the process of stripping the coupons above government bonds. And they would create these securities called LIONS, if I remember the acronym, which was, I think, an acronym for liquid yield option notes or something along those lines. And so you could buy literally a million dollars worth of these bonds at 0% interest rates, you know, zero coupon bond that would lock in a 16, 17, 18% return for 30 years. So the first memory I have of actually buying something that's in size that, that worked out very well were those, those Lions bonds. And then I bought the, the RJR uh, zero coupon pick bonds the day that Drexel Burnham went bankrupt. There was a company here in, and I'm just sort of picking and choosing the, the favorable memories. I made some mistakes as well. These ones worked out. There was a company here in Richmond, Virginia called Rich Food, which was a grocery co-op that converted and, and went public. And it was one of those stocks that started out at 20 and went down to less than a dollar. But I knew the business and visited the company and they had new management come in. So I bought some of that and that ended up being a, a hundred bagger. And then meaningfully, as, as I look at it, look that account today, and I, and I sort of had a hint that you might ask me this question because we've talked about it before. Home Depot was probably 35% of the value of the account. And when you look at Home Depot and Cisco and WW Granger, those three stocks count for more than 50% of the value in that account. And it's just things, businesses that I had a reasonable amount of confidence in that I thought were reasonably well-priced and had the ability to compound and grow for a long period of time. And it, it's worked out. So in some ways, it encapsulates so much of what would happen later in your career, right? It's it, two of the great themes of your investing career, uh, patient compounding and tax deferral. And it's also striking. Well, I mean, I, I, I was looking at a compound interest calculator last night to see, I was, you know, I didn't have the exact numbers, but I was looking and thinking, okay, so, so if $700 grows at, say, you know, 
12% for 44 years. I think it comes out to about 102,000 bucks. And then I was thinking, well, so another 20 years at that, and it's basically going to be about a million bucks, just at 12% a year for that time. That's an extraordinary thing. And, and remarkable that you appreciated it so early on in your life, that you could defer gratification. What a strange well, kid you were, Tom. I was a very strange kid. And I, I, I joke with people, the moment when I became very, very tax sensitive, I think I was in second grade. And at that particular point in time, I used to get an allowance of a dollar a week. And I used to love collecting matchbox cars, which were the little tiny cast cars. I just loved them. And it would be seconds between the instant when that dollar hit my hand and I would trudge down to the local Woolworths store, which was in our, our small town. And those cars sold for 50 cents a piece. And I would lovingly and dutifully inspect the rack of matchbox cars. And I would select two of them and I would go up to the register and hand my dollar bill over for the two matchbox cars that I selected. And one day, literally, this was, I think, in second grade, I handed the clerk the two matchbox cars and she rang it up and said, that'll be a dollar four. And I said, a dollar four. And I patiently explained to her, no, these are only 50 cents a piece. And there are two of them. So two times 50 is a dollar. I'd done this several times before in my life. I was a veteran at buying two matchbox cars for a dollar. And she informed me that the state had just uh, instituted a sales tax and that it was 4%. So now instead of a dollar, it was a dollar four. And my immediate, just emotional reaction was dollar four. What sales tax? What do I get for that? And I was not very happy with the answer of what the sales clerk at Woolworth explained that the social purpose and utility of the sales tax was. And I remember a tearful, painful walk back to the rack where I had to put one of those cars back. And I was only able to buy one car that week and walked away with my, I think, 48 cents of change because it would have been 50 cents plus two cents for the tax. So I had 48 cents to apply towards the purchases next week. But that seared a memory in my mind about uh, tax sensitivity that relates to life in general. Yeah. And it probably helped that you were the son of an accountant and, and later would become an accountant. I think your daughter, one of your kids became an accountant eventually or studied accounting for turning to she, finance, right? She was, a, she was a dutiful daughter and did head off to the University of Virginia with the plan of studying accounting. And pretty quickly into that program, she called me one day and she said, Daddy, would it, would it, would it really disappoint you if I, if I switched from accounting to finance? And I said, no, not at all. You have my complete, utter, total blessing. So she, she did start down that path and has, a, has enough accounting knowledge to be thoughtful and, a, and aware. And it is important, despite the, the jibes I, I take in accounting, including most recently in our, in our annual report, that you have a, awareness of accounting, but use that force for good. And your mindset must very much have been shaped by the fact that you grew up in this fairly rural, old-fashioned place in, in Salem, New Jersey, I think, on a 100-acre on farm, living, I think, in a 250-year-old farmhouse, spending a lot of time with your father and your grandmother. Can you talk about how that background shaped this kind of slow-moving, patient mindset of yours, which has really been at the heart of, of your success as an investor? Well, I think uh, to put a word on it, it was probably like osmosis. So just being surrounded by that environment all the time. My father did have his office in our home and he was an accountant by training, had, had done a tour of duty with a predecessor firm of Deloitte in Philadelphia, but then pretty quickly 
went off on his own and pursued entrepreneurial activities such as his own accounting practice, tax work for people, business consulting, deal work, restructuring, just putting deals together, and he owned a liquor store. So just a, a businessman. And with his office, either in our house or the one that he had in the basement of the liquor store, I was at his side a great deal. And just hearing him interact with people was an osmosis-like process where I'd learned so much just from his conversations. And then similarly, from my grandmother, who gave me many of the books that were formative and had some of the discussions uh, that were formative. In fact, I don't know if I told you this story before, but when I graduated from eighth grade in Salem, my grandmother gave me five shares of the local bank. And that was the era when, before there were bank consolidations and mergers, most small towns had their own bank that was, was headquartered there. And it was a local bank. And my uncle Dick happened to be you know, the vice president. He wasn't the, he wasn't the president of the bank, but he was the number two guy at that particular bank. And I can remember after, and, and she would ask me when she gave me those five shares, she said, Tommy, would you rather be a depositor in the bank or an owner of the bank? And again, without ever looking at a financial statement or looking at the annual reports or thinking financially in any way. I just instantly said, I'd rather be an owner of the bank. And I think she anticipated that question. So the next time I walked in that bank, I, I had my, my shoulders back in the, the owner's inspection mode going on. And I, I thought the ballpoint pens were not attached well enough to the counter where people would endorse their checks and made some comment about to my Uncle Dick about how he ought to step up his game now that he was working for me or yeah. something unwelcome like that. But started at a very early age. I just have no memories of there being a time that I didn't sort of think this way. And you've also said that your grandmother was one of your great investment teachers because she never did anything with the portfolio that she inherited from her late husband. Can you talk about that? Because again, it, it gets at this idea of, of hanging on to good stuff for a long time. Well, yes. In fact, the, the facts of the matter are so. My grandfather died in 1966 when he was a small town businessman and small town businessmen of that era often would gather at the local diner and drink coffee and talk about their portfolios. And it was a pretty common thing for people to own individual stocks among that crowd of people that would drink coffee at the diner. And so when he died, that portfolio was, was left to my grandmother. It was a modest portfolio. It was nothing fancy or large, but, but she was the type of widow who essentially never made another decision in her life. Mm. And his suits hung in the closet. His shoes were on the floor. She stayed in the same home. And she held on to those 12 or 13 stocks that were in his modest portfolio at the time. And what I observed from that is that among those 12 or 13 stocks were Lockheed Martin and Pepsi. And those two, because they did so well, made the others irrelevant. The rest of them all could have gone to zero. And it just didn't matter. The compounding of the winners, mathematically, the weighted average becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and she lived a, a modest but pleasant life for the rest of her life because essentially Pepsi and Lockheed Martin increased their dividend every year for the 25 or 30 years that she lived after, after he died. So again, that lesson wasn't taught to me in a formal text. Let's sit down and talk about this. It was observation. And I can remember talking to her and she would watch Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser on Friday night. Sometimes I would watch that with her. She was always a, a woman of keen interest and what was going on in the world, but either she had some self-confidence issues or doubt or wisdom, I, I can't say which parts it was of which, that these things that were working well, 
she left them alone and they and they they compounded in such a way that it took care of her personal needs. And, and by the way, so when 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 she passed, there was a, a modest inheritance, it's the only inheritance dollars I've ever received. And at that time, that modest inheritance that she designated to me, uh, Markel was selling for $25 a share and she gave me $25,000. So that was enough to buy a thousand shares of Markel, which is what I did with that. And by the way, I still am holding on to this. So the path and the legacy continues. Wow. So what year would that have been? That would have been probably 93, 95, something in that era. That's fascinating because we've talked about this a lot, right? Because you, you went to Markel, I think, in 1990 and Markel went public in 1986. <laughs> and the stock back then was $8.33, I think. And so now, as I looked at it over the weekend, it was $1,326. So I think that's a compound annual return of about 15% over something like 36 years. I've already displayed my mathematical incompetence <laughs> on this show so many times. But so in a way, Markel is kind of the same story, right? A very steady, incremental, dogged progress over long periods of time. So there's a kind of consistency here between what you grew up with, with your, with your grandmother, or hearing local stories. I remember you once telling me this wonderful story of a young newlywed couple going to ask the richest man in town, the furniture store owner, I think, like, how do we sell a stock? And he was like, I don't know. I've never sold one. Exactly. So there's a, there's a really interesting, consistent thread. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it seems, it seems so central to the, to the story of your life and also the story of Markel's success, this steady incremental progress over time. Well, I think in, in many ways you, you have spoken to it, and I, I have very little to, to add to that. A couple of pieces around the edges. So that, that steadiness, you, you have to know what you're good at and what you can do that perhaps would distinguish you. And my father, again, one of my great teachers used to say, he might have, I can't remember his, his exact phrasing, but something along the lines was, there's always somebody smarter than you. There's always somebody taller than you. There's always somebody faster than you. There's always somebody you know, who has more talent than you. So at the end of the day, what you should focus on is your work ethic and showing up and, and participating in something that it, it's not necessarily talent that's going to distinguish you. It's not height. It's not, it's not speed. It's not those sort of things. So I just sort of naturally fell into the, the notion of you can call it an endurance contest if you want. And then if to morph that a little bit towards a financial word, think about the idea of duration. So you talk about Markel and 15% for, for 37 years. Not only is that record long in terms of its duration, that's actually also a pretty good percentage rate too. So b both of those factors are in play, but the endurance of it and the durability and the idea of continuing to be able to do it for a long period of time, that's what's special about it. Someone else recently was asking me about this particular idea. And the thought that occurred to me was that, you know, if, um, if I was going to race, race, Usain Bolt is the fastest man in the world. And that race was going to be a hundred yards. You should take all the money you have and bet it on Usain. He's going to win that race 110 times out of 100. I am never, ever going to be Usain Bolt at a 100-yard race. If you make the race 200 yards, you probably should still bet all your money on Usain Bolt. If you make it a mile, I would still make a heavy, heavy, heavy bet on Usain. If you make it a marathon, well, 
I don't know what Usain Bolt's marathon endurance would be. And probably you don't know what mine is either. So there at least is a hint of uncertainty that is different than the 100-yard race. Well, then make it a foot race, a foot race from Key West, Florida to Seattle. Well, now I think I have a chance. I think, I, I think it's still better than Usain, but it's no longer a race about speed. It's a race about endurance. It's a race about willpower and just the ability to somehow or another to will yourself to continue to put one foot in front of the other, no matter how you feel, no matter how, how you might be doing and no matter where your splits times are. So those are the kind of races that I at least have a chance in because I don't, I don't have any of the natural skills or abilities or talents or intellect to beat the, the fast money of the world. They're, they're just stronger, better, faster, more talented than I am. So I get that. But they're playing a different game. They're running a different race. And the, the foot race from Key West to Seattle, that's the kind of race that I at least have a chance at. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, 
and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. There was an interview with Rich Roll that I listened to recently. Who I don't know if you know. He's a, he was I do a, not know him. I think he was a lawyer who then became an ultra-endurance athlete. And he's very interesting about ultra-endurance. And he said something, I'll, I'll slightly botch the quote, but he said something along the lines of, the person who wins in ultra-endurance is the person who slows down the least. And I thought that was really interesting, this idea of being able to persevere without disaster, right? Without falling out of the race. And I, in some ways, if you think about your, your story over the last 40 years as an investor, part of it is that you didn't blow up, right? I mean, you had a, you had a few periods where things were tough. I remember, I remember in the late 90s, you were shorting stocks and you said to me once that I lost more in one year shorting than I'd made in the other 14 years that I'd been shorting. But can you talk about that importance of if you're playing this long distance game, the importance actually of staying in the game of not, not getting knocked out of the game and not having to slow up so much that you sort of break this long-term compounding process? Well, I think that's, that's exactly right. And just the ability to continue to be there day after day after day after day without getting blown up. So if you, if you want an easier example than having to endure a foot race all the way from Key West to Seattle, Think about a Thanksgiving turkey truck where there's going to be this 5K run or something like that. It's just meant to be fun. And you'll see runners of all ages and abilities that just sort of are participating in this turkey truck because it's fun. Well, inevitably, there'll be a bunch of kids that are there. And inevitably, when the starter's gun goes off, those kids sprint away from the starting line because they're kids and it's fun and their adrenaline levels are high and they're, they're going right after it. But after 200, 300, 400, 500 yards, you see them starting to bend over or you see them start to slow down to use the words you did just mention. But the runners who know what they're doing have paced themselves and, and they know at what rate they can run in such a way that they'll still be running at pretty much the same rate by the time they cross that 5k finish line as they would right after the first hundred yards or so. So the analogy is, is I think, uh, well-crafted and, and it, it's applicable. And it's exactly what that gentleman you spoke of said, the ability to just keep going. It's something that differentiates you over time. Yeah, I think about this sometimes with someone like Peter Lynch, right, who sprinted like crazy for 13 years, I think, and then was done. And it, there is a kind of athletic feat involved there to run at that pace, never to take a vacation, but just work nonstop. And, you know, you, in a sense, you've taken the opposite tack, right? It's this slow, steady, dog-eared approach. But at the same time, I'm very struck. I, you're, you're kind of humble and self-mocking about the, your slowness. But in some ways, I look at you and you've, you've, you're actually pretty intense yourself, right? I mean, you do, you keep going. I, I, I think I got an email from you this morning at 5.15 and it's, it's a federal holiday today. Can you talk about that, about getting this kind of balance where you're, you're managing your energy in a way where you can survive and you can compete in a very long distance ultra endurance investment race? Um, well, I think probably like the ultra athletes, they, they do love it. So it, it's fun. I, I enjoy this. And I can remember one time I was, I was playing golf with Steve Markell and I enjoyed playing golf every once in a while. And at one point we were on the 14th hole and I was not having a good day on the golf course. It was hot. And I looked at Steve and I said, Steve, can we go back to the office where I feel more comfortable? <laughs> so 
I mean, that, that literally happened. And it, it sort of, it encapsulates the sense of the, the joy that I feel in doing what I do. So the fact of the matter is, so th- this day, which is a federal holiday, I'm getting to talk to you, one of my friends. We're thinking about investing. We're uh, thinking expansively. I get to read stuff that is of interest to me. I get to sit in a nice heated office on a February day. So I get to drink coffee that somebody provided for me. So this is what I do for fun. And I enjoy playing an occasional round of golf and watching a football game or a basketball game or a baseball game. But, but, but I really do enjoy this. This is, this is fun. This is, this is, I think, what I was put on earth to do. So it, it's like the, uh, the Chariots of Fire movie. And there's the scene where the gentleman is having a discussion, shall we say, with his sister, who, because of the, their faith, she suggested that he should not run the Olympic race, which was on a Sunday. And his response, I think Eric Little, if, if I remember the, the guy's name, he told his sister, he says, yes, and I agree with you that God made me, but he also made me fast. And I feel his joy within me when I run. I'm, I'm not quoting it exactly, but that's the essence of it. So in, in doing this, I, I, I feel this is what I was made to do. And I feel his joy within me when I am doing it. So that sounds like fun to me. Yeah, no, it's great. And uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis in your life actually on fun and humor. And I, I think about this a lot because I, I feel like when I was a kid, I was a much more facetious, jokey, lighthearted person. I feel like I've become increasingly earnest and I've, I've kind of forgotten to lighten up. And I, I, there was a great piece of advice from Stephen King to another, another famous novelist who was starting to be successful. And he said, don't forget to enjoy it. And I feel like I sometimes forget that. And when I, when I look at you, I'm kind of reminded that you have fun doing this. And it's actually, it's built into the value system of Markel, this idea of having a, a sense of humor. Absolutely. And I think there are several key points to keep in mind there. One, I think a sense of humor is a sign of intelligence because it, it shows that you're able to look at something and think about it from a different point of view or see the absurdity and things. Boy, if you, if you don't have that, life will beat you down because there are just so many things that you encounter in, in life that are just absurd that for me anyway, having a sense of humor is, is a way of reframing things and, and, and laughing. It is an aspect of humility and not taking yourself too seriously because if you take yourself too seriously, that can easily slip over into thinking you're right. And if you think you're right, you know, then, then, then you're setting yourself up for a fall. I can't remember whether it's Mark Twain or Will Rogers said something. It's, it's not the things that you don't know. It's the things that you know that aren't so get you in trouble. So a sense of humor acts as a break on that sort of thing. And that's important. And then the last thing, humor slash fun. And again, these are words that they're not the same words, but they, they sort of touch one another and have some overlap. So uh, I wrote about Cal Ripken in the, in the annual report this year. And I had the great pleasure of seeing him give a, give a, a talk quite recently in the context of his talk and the questions that people asked as to how that streak came to be. One of the things he talked about was that as he was a rookie in his first or second or third year, and he would talk to some of the older players on the club who had been there, they, they made a special point of sort of acknowledging that they were at the end of the, their career or had just finished. And it was so much fun. And they had forgotten how to have some of the joy that they should have had while playing the game. So that was one of the things that kept Cal Ripken motivated and dedicated to showing up every single day and continuing to play is that he knew it was not going to last forever. So as a consequence, 
that helped him frame it in such a way that he appreciated each day at the ballpark. That's joy. It was very interesting re- reading about Cal Ripken in your latest annual report. And you, you look, I know nothing about American sports, but, but you, you said he was known as the Iron Man for playing, I think, 2,632 consecutive games. And there was a lovely quote from you where you said, his unrelenting presence day after day, year after year, created the ability of his teammates to depend on him. His team knew that they could count on him. The sense of dependability he provided to his team can't be measured. And I was thinking about you, you many years ago, I think, had said to me that your father talked to you about how the greatest ability is dependability. And, and I remember you in, in your office when I hung out with you, when I, I was interviewing you for a couple of days for Richer, Wiser, Happier, you had a, a post-it on your computer that reminded you of Michael Jordan's failure earlier in life as a basketball player and his incredible perseverance after he'd not made it into his, his high school basketball team, I think. Can you talk about this very central idea of just showing up, of persistence? Because it seems, it seems actually so essential to your success. It's kind of a central, a central lesson of your career and your, your approach to life. I think that's correct. And, and really, one of the ways you could frame that or think about it is, for me, it is a force multiplier. Because if the contest and the test is going to be how high you can jump or how quickly you can process something. I'm not going to win those contests. There's, there's somebody better, faster, quicker at those sorts of, at almost any task you can imagine. But that ability to persist and endure and stay with it, it, it magnifies the power of, of whatever aspect you're talking about. The other thing that I think is relevant, and I think this is a, a, a valuable tool for anybody, the idea of writing what I wrote about Cal Ripken I don't think, I don't think you need to be a, a, a trained doctorate level psychiatrist to understand. I'm probably writing that as an admonition slash prescription for myself. So, so those letters that I write, sure, there's an audience, but the most important audience for what I write is, is me. I'm, I'm talking to myself in, in so much of what I write and it helps me clarify my thinking and think about what I want to be and, who your heroes are, Buffett and Munger talk about choosing heroes, selectively, all, all of those things just go into the soup of how it all fits together. It's very interesting, this idea of writing things down so that you, you clarify your ideas and they're there for you to keep coming back to and to pound the ideas into your head. And I, th- I think of, in, in your case, a couple of examples, right? First, the Markel Creed of that you have about the, the culture that's in every single annual report, um, talking about the values of the company. And then likewise, the four-part investment process that you have, the filters that you have for every investment. There's something about kind of, and you use the word creed in the annual report often, or liturgy. Yeah. There, there is something almost religious, right, about this way you write down your principles. It's, it's, it's very Ray Dalio-esque as well, right? You write down your principles and then you keep coming back to them. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I think it's something that's it's very easily replicable for the rest of us. And it's actually a really important tool in life. Well, and, uh, you're absolutely right. And you can approach this from many different places. So for instance, riding in to work this morning, I was listening to somebody who was talking about the habit, the daily habit of journaling. Mm. And the importance of journaling. Well, there was no religious context to that, but this is a person who has the discipline every morning when he gets up to, to do some journaling. And, and again, 
it's an iteration of the same theme and the same way of doing things. To your point about in, in, the, in the Jewish tradition, the notion of saying something, it is written. It is written. When you hear that phrase said, and then a reference is made to what it is that has been written, that means take a pause. Think about this. This is serious. Um, in addition to the clarification of your own thoughts, when you write something down, well, the good news is when it is written, it becomes scalable and savable. So you don't have to repeat what you said 10 minutes, 10 months, 10 years later. It was written. There's a record that is accumulating of what you wrote and more than one person can read it at a time. So that's where the, the scalability comes through. So I, I just appreciate the discipline that is involved in framing your conversation, framing a communication, framing anything you want to you want to share with somebody through the written word. That seems like a good process to me. You've had this creed at the heart of Markel, right, since before 1986, which I think Alan Kirshner, who recently retired as executive chairman, had, had been the lead writer of the Markel style, which is very much built on what, what you refer to as these timeless values, right? Things like honesty and fairness and hard work and the zealous pursuit of excellence and trust and a mindset of service and, and a win-win-win culture. And I think people tend to be kind of skeptical of this, right? When, when corporations talk about, you know, their virtues and the like, but, but it seems to me truly central to, to Markel. It doesn't seem like, um, propaganda. Can you talk about this as a, as a kind of competitive advantage, this idea of, of setting the culture, setting it in stone and having it there for, what is it now? 37 years. Correct. And Alan was indeed the primary author of the Markel style, which was done long before I got here. It was part of the process when Alan and Tony and Steve Markel uh, were about to go public. It was a time to take a pause and to do some reflection over what the values of this company were. And again, the context of setting these things down in stone, so to speak, so that when they were no longer here and they knew they were mortal, those values would continue to be carried on even when they, when they weren't here day to day to supervise that process. And you know, Alan and Tony and Steve have, have not been here on a day-to-day -day basis for, for over a decade in all of them. Alan retired from the board a couple of years ago. Steve and Tony are obviously still involved at the, at the board level, but they've stepped back from day-to-day. -day. But yet the essence of what was communicated in the style still pervades the company. I do think that that is a competitive advantage. And the way in which it shows up is this, and, and the other athlete that I talked about in the annual report this year was Bill Russell. And Bill Russell primarily was a factor on the defensive side of the game. And defense is much harder to quantify and capture in statistical metrics than what offensive contributions are. But his team won when, when he was on the, on the floor. So these unquantifiable type of factors, I think just like the Celtics won when Bill Walton, I mean, when Bill Russell was on the, on the, on the floor. And by the way, Freudian slip there. Bill Walton ended up playing for the Celtics too. And they won when he was around too, but a very different style of player than Bill Russell. But we get to see deals and get exposure to people and get opportunities that come about because people who share the same basic values as what we do, they, they like doing business with people they know and they trust. And they prefer not to do business with somebody that they don't know and they don't trust. So Frankly, I think we see things from the opportunity to build Markel from, you know, what businesses we did. Plus, I think our customers 
have a sensation that they're dealing with somebody who's going to do their best to try to serve them in such a way that they'll want to do business with us again. One of my great friends is a guy named Shad Rowe, who is a money manager down in Dallas, Texas, and also someone I've learned a lot from over the years. And one of his phrases, and again, this goes back 20 years or so, he said he wanted to invest in companies that did things for their customers rather than to their customers. So you get these snippets of wisdom from all kinds of different sources, but they all, they all line up in the same general direction. And they, I think they support the foundation of, of how it is you should do business. And by the way, I think life works out better when you follow those rules, certainly in the long run. There was something you said to me when I first interviewed you, I think probably back in 2014 or 15, that I was very struck by that I'll, I'll read back to you where you said, sometimes people can build great careers and enjoy great successes for a period of time through bluster and bullying and intimidation and slipperiness. But that always comes unraveled, always. Sometimes it takes a while, but it does. The people you find that are successful and just keep being successful year after year after year, I think you find those are people of deep integrity. I thought there's a really interesting insight, and I, I've struggled with it for a while. I, I think partly because I had kind of lost a political battle at a company where I had worked. And I was like, well, actually, I think kind of in some ways the snakes won. Maybe that was self-deluding and I was a snake myself. And then I would look at kind of the political situation. I would see, uh, you know, the corruption of politics by business and big money and the like. And, and there's, there's a part of me you know, and then also, I mean, look, Charlie Munger has talked about how Sumner Redstone was always his example of what I don't want to be in life. And he was like, look, this guy made much more money than me, but even his kids and his wives hated him. And I, I never met Sumner Redstone. I'm not trying to badmouth bad mouth him. But you know what I mean? This question of whether, whether it's actually better to live your life this way or to do business this way or, or to look at the counterexample of these people who are tremendously successful while having very sharp elbows and leaving a trail of lawsuits in their wake. Can you talk about that? Because I, I, like, I feel like some people just assume that capitalism is kind of vicious and nasty and self-seeking and that that's the way it goes. And, and I think you're pointing us towards actually a different system that may actually work better in the long run. Right. And, and I do think that... Uh, Capitalism is a much better system than what it's given credit for. And I think businessmen oftentimes do a horrible job of communicating the positives of a, the, of a capitalist system. So Adam Smith is given credit for being sort of the father and the intellectual creator of the system of capitalism. I believe his title was professor of moral philosophy at University of Edinburgh or Glasgow or wherever he was um, at the time. So he approached the idea of capitalism from a moral lens and thought it was a superior system and wrote books about it in, in that way. Secondly, success, I think, is something that you shouldn't define along only one variable. It's a complicated equation. There are a lot of things that go into the idea of success. So if you were, again, the realm of athletics, because things just pop into my head from, from athletic stuff, and so if you look at Muhammad Ali and his career as a boxer and his probably reputation well-deserved for being the greatest fighter ever, well, that's probably true. But if Muhammad Ali needed to be a tennis player or a chess player, he might not have been so successful. So if you're going to define success, make sure you, you, you define what arena you're talking about. So just to say the word success in and of itself 
is uh, is it's too limited. It's, it's not enough. So I do not know the family structures of Sumner Redstone or Charlie Munger for that matter. I'm guessing that Charlie Munger's success probably has more dimensions to it than Sumner Redstone. But that is just a pure guess on my part. And and two points about Charlie Munger was the notion of um, you know if you want, if you want to be success, the best way to do that is to deserve it. So he operated with the idea of trying to be someone who deserved the success that, that he has earned. And I think that's a, a fundamentally important way of doing these. And it, there's a business practice, there's a life practice that flows from that. So if, if I just met you and we were, we were talking about a deal or a project or some commercial transaction, and I said, William, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. You can't help it if, again, if we don't know one another, that is going to cause 99 times out of 100, just a hint of doubt in you. Because if I say, trust me, trust me, trust me, your natural human reaction is, I can't trust this guy. And the notion of trust is not going to flow immediately if I started that way. But if instead I say, William, I'm going to trust you. And I, I've done some work or some, some, had some basis for saying, I, I trust you. I trust you. And I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, and offer the gesture of trust first without demanding reciprocation or equality. I just do that in an unconditional way. What I have observed is that either you will do one of two things. You will either honor that trust or you'll violate it. And if you're going to violate the trust, you'll probably do it sooner rather than later. And in so doing, you'll have sorted yourself and we're just not going to do business again. But if you honor that trust and start to trust back, what happens is that starts to cascade. And it's another element of compounding that takes place in your relationships with people. If you trust first, if you offer that service, that, that value uh, first, and you initiate that, the, the world will sift and sort itself and orient and give you an, enough people and enough opportunities. We have these compounding trust relationships that it, it just becomes marvelous over time. Same thing would be said in, a, in, a, in the word of love. If I say, love me, and you, you're trying to meet somebody, you're trying to develop a relationship, you say, love me, love me, love me, love me. I don't think that's going to work. But if you, if you offer love and, and you offer it unconditionally, is everybody going to love you back? No, but a lot of people will. And, and they'll do it in enduring, consistent, systemic ways. So just to orient yourself to be the initiator of trust and be the initiator of love. And then don't be stupid, reciprocate and compound and grow the trust relationships and the love relationship and filter out the ones where you're not getting reciprocity. If you stay at the game long enough, and I've been at it 40 some years, you'll find you have a wonderful group of people that are enjoyable, fun relationships that keep you coming in the office and doing what you're doing as opposed to wanting to go play golf instead. That's working out for me. You once described yourself to me as a node in a neural network, which I thought was a really interesting image. And the, the more I observe you, the more I've seen that this is one of your great competitive advantages, that, that you're surrounded by people in your ecosystem who wish you well and want to help you. And it's a remarkably powerful thing. It's a, it's a different way of playing the game. And I, I guess it sort of plays to your strengths as well, because you're a sociable, gregarious guy. But I, I'm wondering, did, did was there somebody you saw, whether it was your father or Buffett or, or some, someone at Graham Holdings or whatever that you looked at and you're like, 
that's a really smart way of operating in the world. Or, or not just smart, but decent and, and right and feels good. The answer to your question is yes. There are people who have managed to somehow be around or bump into or be exposed to that taught me those lessons and have done it over and over and over and over again. So one of the first ones would have been my father because I was a kid and I was running and I observed him in that way. As in the public figures that you speak of, somebody like Don Graham or somebody like Warren Buffett, I've observed that in them personally for multiple decades and have learned that as, as an adult. But it doesn't grow stale or it doesn't grow old. And as recently as within the last 30 to 60 days, there was a circumstance and a situation in Richmond, Virginia, where there was a gentleman, and I've known this guy reasonably well. We're not, we're not real close, but, I, but I've known him reasonably well for probably the better part of 35 or 40 years. And there was a, and, and he's reasonably well-known around Richmond. He's successful, both in the terms that the world might immediately jump to as successful, but he's also successful in that I know his children. And they're, they're good people. They're fun to be around. They, they have not been warped by affluence in the way that, that, that some are. They, they are successful as well. And I think when you see that sort of kindness and love-based and trust-based that, that is both financially and in human terms successful for multiple generations, you're really looking at something special and you want to pay attention and try to learn something from that. And I was in a conversation with him and somehow it came up that he said, well, he gets up every day and the first thought he has is how can he do something for somebody? How can he help somebody? Now, if somebody who I did not know for 30 or 40 years and I was meeting on first, first occasion and I didn't know a single thing about him, there's a natural uh, skepticism that one has when you hear somebody say something like that. Because you wonder, you know, what's their angle or what, what, what's going on here really? But as you, as you get to know somebody and you can have some sense personally that that is indeed genuine. And you can see 35 or 40 years of track records of how it's worked out for that person because, yeah, I think he really does mean what he says. And he does that over and over and over and over again. Again, I've tried to live this. I've certainly been exposed to it and been taught that from my, my earliest memory. But yet here it is within the last, say, 60 or 90 days, there was an occasion where I had a chance to drink a cup of coffee or, or talk to somebody who, um, who I knew a little bit. And that was his core message. Just getting up in the morning, like, what can I do today that will help somebody? And I, I've seen him do it for 40 years. So you learn those kinds of things that are exposed to them on a regular basis. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, 
a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. It's curious how this turns out to be incredibly helpful, even in the investment business, which we kind of assume is this ultra competitive zero sum game where somebody has to suffer for you to benefit. And to some degree, maybe that's true. But I see in your life and in the life of someone like my great old friend Guy Spear that you guys embody what I call in my book, the mensch effect, where, you know, you're mentors, you're you're trying to be decent, kind human beings, lots of people. And I see the world kind of organizing itself around you. So there are lots of people trying to help you. And I, 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 I was chatting with Josh Tarasoff, a mutual friend of ours the other day, an excellent uh, hedge fund manager, who I remember he was talking to you about Amazon years ago, and you ended up buying Amazon after discussing it with him. And it seems like that's happened to you a lot, right? Where people are exchanging information in a way that's kind of selfless, but maybe it's also because at the time he was invested in Markel, but, but you have that to an extraordinary degree. And it's, it's instructive for people because I think it it suggests that there's another way of going about business and investing that's actually more, it, it requires a degree of courage, right? Because it's, uh, it's, it's not just guarding everything for yourself. Well, it's both courage and cowardice at the same time. Because if you really, and all these things tie together, and I think the time frames in which you're talking dictate so much of how you would frame things. So 
if you're talking about a short-term situation where you're trading, I don't know, pick whatever it is, uh, that, that uh, Bitcoin or pork bellies or options, which are, tend to be measured on day-to-day, if not moment-to-moment or second-to-second or nanosecond-to-second kind of, kind of measures, those do tend to be win-loss games and pre- there's zero sum. And if you win, some, somebody else loses. But when you stretch those time horizons out over 5, 10, 50 lifetime kind of measurements, I think you have the opportunity to play win-win games. And that's just an entirely different uh, way of thinking. And as an illustration of that, of how this can be so successful from a business point of view, I can remember a couple of years ago at the uh, Berkshire annual meeting and Charlie Munger, who oftentimes just puts his finger right on it in terms of behavior and just trying to be stand-up people and do the right thing and think longer term. He said in response to some, some question of, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it? The endless questions of uh, young, agile types trying to figure out Berkshire. He said, look, we were two guys talking on the phone and now we are bigger than General Electric. That should not have happened. And he was just trying to illustrate the point that uh, General Electric was a company that in many ways lost its way. It had huge, epic advantages. You go back 50 years ago and you look at whatever collection of businesses at whatever place in the society General Electric occupied versus whatever position Berkshire Hathaway occupied 50 years ago, I think it would have been hard to foresee and bet and predict that, that Berkshire was going to be the one that would be more successful in many of the measurable metrics that, that you would think about. But that is indeed what happened. And, and Munger would suggest the word that he likes to use a lot is rational. And he would say uh, Buffett and he do their best to make rational decisions day after day after day after day. I would extend that and say rationality looks different when you're playing a finite win-lose game than what it looks like when you're playing an infinite win-win game. And I think it was James Course, if I'm remembering the name correctly, who wrote about the infinite game. And he talked about, you know, in a, in a finite game, there are rules. There's a, there's a period of time. It's finite. And there's a winner and there's a loser. And that's the definition of a finite game. Infinite games tend to not have so many rules and, and they don't have a time horizon attached. And the only, the only prime directive that exists in an infinite game is that all of the players of the game have to feel that they're winning because if they don't, they're going to stop playing and the game is no longer infinite. So I just want to play an infinite game. And I'm fortunate in, in so many ways, the advantages I had, the upbringing, the education, the, the base of never worrying about where my next meal was going to come from or getting a good education. And I would extend that to, I mean, the next most substantive thing that happened to me was getting married to Susan. And I was married to her by age 19. I knew a good thing when I saw it. And she's been a spectacular partner that in so many ways has undergirded so, so much of what I've done. You know, because she was, she was gainfully employed and frugal and just always, always took care of 75% of my life that I was really able to concentrate on this piece of my life and know that she had me covered for, for everything else. Uh, so that, that kind of partnership is, is a crucial component of how these sorts of things unfold and happen over time. Yeah, she's a remarkable woman and she runs a good business too. She does indeed. Uh, for people who don't know, um, Tom's wife, Susan, who he met, I think, when he was 15 and went on his first date at the custard stand in, in Salem, New Jersey. Now runs a very successful business for, for Markel as well and is a, a remarkable person. So, Tom, you, the first stock 
you bought back at Markel when you took charge of the investment portfolio in 1990 was Berkshire back when I think the stock was at around 5,750 and now it's what, 467,000, something like that. Something like that. How does it embody the four filters that you have for looking at a business? Because it's obviously, it's, it's grown to, I think the best part of a billion dollars, your stake in, in Berkshire. If we're trying to explain to listeners what a good business looks like, what a business that passes these four filters looks like, how is this in some sense the perfect embodiment of that? Well, it's like the old joke, you know, if you uh, wanted some word definition in the dictionary, you looked it up and there was somebody's picture there. Well, if you want the embodiment of what the four filters of the, the four lenses that we use to think about investments and you open the book, it would be the picture of Berkshire there. Yeah. So each of those four filters, first off, a good business that earns good returns on capital without using too much debt to do it. So if you look at the returns on capital that Berkshire has earned in the various businesses they've been in for a long period of time, they are very good. And they've spoken and written and acted in such a way that they've, they've talked about. It's not that debt is wrong or there's any moral dimension to it. And it's not that they don't use some debt, but they use very little and comparatively less than, than most other people would in the, in the same situation or circumstances. And the reason for that is debt introduces fragility into the system that you might be very good at what you do. You may have a fine business. But if you have an interest bill that comes due at an inopportune time, you may lose the opportunity to continue playing your infinite game. So step number one, good business, good returns on capital without too much debt. Check, check, check. Uh, lens number two is management teams with equal measures of talent and integrity. And so many of these lenses, I did not make these up myself. I learned them from people like Buffett and Munger and so many, many others. But if you look at how they have behaved over so many years, Clearly, the returns on capital that Berkshire's own suggests the talent that they have and the talent that is embedded within the entire system of Berkshire and the behavior, the personal integrity. They've always given the shareholders a, an epically good deal in terms of their cut of maybe the vast, vast, vast majority of their wealth through owning Berkshire shares and enjoying the exact same economics as what a shareholder does. It's not economics that they would have earned as managers rather than shareholders. So that's the test uh, there. Point number three, and this is really where Berkshire has distinguished itself and in so many ways set the role model and the example, what we're trying to do at Markel is, does the, does the business have capital discipline and can they find acquisitions to reinvest the cash they make or have capital discipline in terms of being good at acquisition uh, or share repurchases or dividend payments? Well, Berkshire had a, a tiny, tiny business 50 years ago, and they made money. And up until within the last year or two, they had taken on the challenge of reinvesting that money in their existing businesses or new businesses through acquisitions. So if you think about an Olympic diver and you know, you're judged not only in how well you execute the dive, but the degree of difficulty of that dive. So if you have a very good business and it, and it makes excellent returns, but you pay the money out in dividends or share repurchases on a pretty regular basis. Well, what you're doing is a dive of only a certain degree of difficulty. If you take, it's, it's, it's a swan dive and you can do it and get a 10.0, but if it's just a swan dive, you will only get but so high a score because the degree of difficulty involved in doing that is not as much as when you introduce the triple axle reverse lunge twist 
kind of depth. Those dives are harder to do and to execute them well and with the same degree of precision that you can execute a swan dive, that's how you become an Olympic champion. And if you look at Berkshire's behavior and execution of an incredibly difficult dive for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, that's what makes Berkshire special is that reinvestment lens and that reinvestment aspect of the third leg there. And then the fourth, and it's really the least important is if is price discipline. Can you buy this at such a price that the returns of the business itself are going to roughly match what you as a, as a shareholder receive? And that just means don't pay so ridiculous a high price when you find those three things uh, that you, the fault is yours in your execution of the, of the purchase decision rather than what intrinsically happened at the business itself. Now, here's where the advantage of being part of the structure at Markel is so helpful. I spent the vast, 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 vast majority of my time on seeing whether those first three lenses are there. And if they are, and even if I conclude that this thing is, is way overpriced, I usually make myself buy just a little bit of it. And then three months or six months go by and I sort of revisit my thesis and I think about whether those, those first three factors are still there. And, and if they're there in, in, in strength, I make myself buy a little bit more. And then sometimes there'll be extreme dislocations in the markets or for some, some reason or another, the price will change. Well, by virtue of already owning a little bit and make myself familiar with it, it, it emboldens me psychologically to take a bigger swing when something like that comes along. And even if it never gets to the point where you think, wow, this is an incredible price, but you keep thinking this is incredible business. If you find yourself buying it every quarter for year after year after year, and, and you're right about your underwriting decision on those first three aspects, you end up with a spectacular investment because you, the price you pay gets, gets overtaken and swamped by the, the quality of the business itself. And in a way, it's the same lesson as your IRA, right? Where as a kid, where you just keep adding to the pot through thick and thin. And then you Correct. look back 30, 40 years later and you're like, wow. It's right. And then, and then oftentimes people are kind of confused by, they see the long list of stocks that we own and they think that, wow, that, that doesn't seem very disciplined and it seems sort of splattered all about. But that's really the farming process. There are a lot of seeds that are planted to see which things are going to emerge and which of those seeds. To go back to your Peter Lynch idea, he talked about the foolishness of selling your winners. And he called that picking the flowers and watering the weeds and talked in, in his book, which my grandmother gave me, by the way, or, or that, you know, the, the discipline of not taking a profit prematurely, which is a human tendency. You want to do that. You, you, you celebrate the victory lap, the checkered flag rises and getting back to my IRA story. I remember this vividly. I came this close to doing something truly, truly, truly stupid with my own Home Depot story. And, and fortunately, I talked myself out of it or, or somehow or another, I averted this particular trade. So coming out of the housing crisis, Home Depot was really doing quite well. I mean, they, they proved that the renovation model as opposed to new construction was more durable, um, just operating really well. And I thought, I thought for a nanosecond, especially because it was in my IRA, I could write covered calls on it, you know, to generate a little more cash and have a little more cash to invest. And, and fortunately, that thought passed before I did so, because had I done that, those calls would have been exercised and, and that Home Depot would have been sold in 2011 or 12 or something like that. I would have missed the last decade, potentially, 
of what came from owning Home Depot because I would have taken a short-term win and celebrated a win and had a, had a great trade, but missed an epic sort of moving the needle kind of company that has influenced the investment results, not just for my IRA, but for, for Markel in total. That's our, that's our third largest holding. So it's a, it matters. When I think about the lessons of your career, in some ways, it's a, it's a perfect embodiment of Munger's, Munger's teaching that you want to be focusing on avoiding standard stupidities, right? It's, it's all the things that you avoided that didn't mess up the compounding journey. Can you talk about that a bit? Because there are, there are these things you've done, like keeping your expenses low, living within your means, weaning yourself away from shorting stuff, not predicting the future moves of interest rates and inflation and the like, and, and just sort of sticking to your four filters. It seems to me this is replicable. There's actually a lot that you don't do that we can also not do as regular investors, if I'm expressing that correctly. Well, I think that's true. And, and in fact, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld has a great routine about the involuntary luge. And just like, you know, watch the luge competition. And these people are wearing these micro micrometer level clothing and they've trained their muscles and they have this sharpened blade to go down the, down the luge and you get to the bottom of the luge at a certain speed. And the, it's going to be hundreds of a second that determine the difference between the gold medal winner and the fourth place person who was going away from the Olympus with nothing. Well, Jerry Seinfeld has this comedy routine, and I can't do it justice here. So what would be the result? How, how far behind would be the person that they just sort of grab out of the spectator line and chuck him down the luge? You know, it's not going to win the gold medal, but I think you'll find that the time, as long as you don't get hurled from the luge track, is not going to be massively different than the person who has trained to be a great Olympic caliber luge athlete. And you think about that in terms of investment, those things you just talked about of, of costs and trading and taxes being such a, a huge bit of that. So the investment world in and of itself, and if you think about the compounding that takes place within businesses that are successful and earning good returns on capital, that is giving you a downhill luge tube to ride in. You know, when you, when you start investing in major companies and in, you know, publicly traded companies, you're not trying to go downhill in an uphill luge. Just give yourself permission to take advantage of the force that's already there. So then what separates the true amateur or the person who's going who's gonna, to uh, die doing this from the person who ends up posting a pretty good time? It's the ability to minimize friction as much as possible and not get in those curves where the forces overtake you and throw you out of the luge track. So by maintaining this discipline, I'm just trying to ride down that luge track that is there in the context of businesses that are successful at serving their customers and taking care of people. And, and you know, always going back to that notion of a company that makes a positive uh, difference and, and helps their customers out. You're in a downhill luge, just stay in the luge and, and don't get hurled out of it and, and don't operate it in such a way that you increase the friction that, that's there or not. I guess one of the best ways of getting thrown out of the luge and uh, and messing up disastrously is by partnering with people who are untrustworthy. And and you've often talked about money managers as custodians and and shepherds of other people's savings. I I remember Chris Davis once saying to me that you'd actually freed him from the the moral straitjacket of becoming a money manager because you you explained this notion of stewardship and 
being trustworthy and he thought uh, okay so the, so maybe maybe as charlie would say it's a low vocation but it is a vocation and i wonder if i could ask you like when you're when you're trying to appraise the talent and integrity of managers or or you're trying to appraise the talent and integrity of people to partner with what what are you looking for i mean because obviously we need to partner with people who are going to put our interests first and in the investment business there are a hell of a lot of them who are not out to do that, right? They're in survival mode where they're, they're looking out for themselves first. What, what are the tells? What are the clues when you're trying to assess whether, whether someone is going to look out for you or not? Most people have a, have a trail behind them. Uh, there are people that they've done business with that know them, that if you spend a little bit of time and do a little bit of due diligence, you can kind of get this rough, rough sense uh, that this is a person who makes the people around them better off or, or worse off. I, I don't think that is as impossible a task as what you think. And you got to keep your eyes open and be sensitive to if your thesis is confirmed day by day or, or disconfirmed day by day. Again, getting back to that conversation in an earlier point in the conversation where you offer trust, you trust first, and that trust is either reciprocated or violated. And just through a lifetime of doing that sort of thing, both you build that network of relationships, you become one of the, one of the nodes on that, on that web of trust. Um, and, and the people that you have it with, it, it compounds and becomes bigger and bigger over time. And by the way, the, the best way for a new person to come onto that node is for them to be vouched for by, by someone who's already on the node. So I'm, I'm sure again, in the due diligence you would have done, for the people you've written about over the years, you, you didn't just talk to the person that you were writing about. You, you talked to other people who had dealings with that person to kind of see if you were on the right track or not. And I, I suspect, I think your hit ratio was probably pretty good. And if you were setting out to write the, the, the book today as compared to 10 years ago, I dare to say, I, I think you might even be better at it today because you've been at the process for the last 10 years and you've developed your own filters and spidey sense and ways and methods to think about, am I, am I on the right track or not? When Buffett and Berkshire made a big acquisition earlier in 2022, I think, and bought a, a stake in Markel, I think I'm right in saying they invested a little over, uh, over $600 million. So a pretty big vote of confidence in Markel and you as the you CEO. What did that mean to you knowing Having having owned Berkshire f- since 1990, having served on the as a director on the board of the Washington Post Company alongside Warren, I mean, th- there is a there is a sense in which it's a sort of blessing from the the people you greatly admire, them recognizing you as a as a node in the neural network in in the web of in the web of seamless uh, deserved mutual trust that Charlie talks about. What did that mean for you? Well, as, as Charlie Munger might say, after that setup, I have nothing to add. You're exactly right. It was, it was a great day. I found out about it in the same way that everybody else did, i.e. the filing of their 13F. So it's just through normal public channels. But it's, it's a very affirming, uplifting, happy day in my life when I saw that 13F. Could you see yourself ever, I know it's an unfair question, but could you see yourself ever ending up at, at Berkshire? My job is to do the best I can. Markel is a spectacular place. I've been given every opportunity in the world. And if we, if we keep compounding things here, I think everybody's going to be happy. Berkshire has a great team. I mean, they have, 
they have great people in place there. They're, they're very concerned with their own legacy and survival and way of doing things. And again, I'm rooting for them since uh, that's our largest holding. So I think we'll, we'll both, we'll both be okay. I feel, Tom, like I want to bet you a, a box of donuts that at some point in the next 10 years, you know, Markel is going to end up acquired by Berkshire and you're going to end up being part of the family. And you don't need well, to comment on this, but if, but I want a, a jelly donut, if that's, if I win. How about I buy you donuts for some different reason? Okay. I think you shouldn't buy me donuts at all. Uh, then since, I'll eat, uh, I'll buy you them and I will eat them. My, my wife will pay you not to buy me donuts. Um, talking of wives, one, one of the things that really stands out when I look at your life, it, it is that you've managed to a degree that very few ultra successful money managers have managed to have a successful family life. You have three um, grown up kids that I, I know you're close to and, and love and regard as, as uh, I think you once described them to me as three normal, enjoyable adult children. Right. And you've been happily married for a long time to a very decent person. And I often find when I'm, when I'm being interviewed by people, they're asking me, well, have you met many of these really successful investors who actually are happy and who have good lives? And you're on the short list of people that I tend to cite. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, about how you've managed to balance the intensity of your work and the demands on you with actually still managing to have successful relationships with your family and friends. I think that's an important and, and complicated topic in a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways I could go on that. One thing that I often find myself in conversation with fellow investors on is the idea of optimizing something versus satisficing something. And I would put myself in the category of a satisficer as opposed to an optimizer in many ways. And I don't want to make an extreme statement there, but in the, in the realm of an investment, a lot of people spend a lot of time and focus on optimizing something. And then that's a great thing as long as it's properly constrained. And there's, there's certain things in this world where it's an imperfect world. It's a, it's a finite world. It's only going to get so good. And when, when you try to optimize something beyond the point at which it can be optimized in this world, I think you've set yourself up for frustration and disappointment. That might be where some of that unhappiness or pressure or tension manifests itself is, is pushing that boundary too far. Now, similarly, at the other end of the extreme, it's a mistake to be satisfied with anything. So for instance, you raise the issue of jelly donuts, which I love as much as any human being alive. But if it, 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 think of it in a systemic way, if I set my standard and threshold for the degree of satisfaction that a particular jelly donut would, would bring me, I would eat too many jelly donuts and they would not be of good enough quality such that it would end up causing a problem for me of obesity or diabetes or things, things of that nature. So it's important to set the satisfaction bar high enough that I can enjoy appropriately some number of jelly donuts, which bring me joy and satisfaction in life without thinking that I can only allow myself to eat the best jelly donut that's ever been made on planet Earth. Well, that would result in me eating either one or zero jelly donuts. And that's not a good outcome from my point of view. So I want to set those dials and levers and, and goalposts in such a way that it's, it's the appropriate zone between optimization and, and satisfaction. And I think the tendency among type A professional investors 
is to is to err a little bit too much toward the optimization function as opposed to the satisfaction function. And as a consequence, you have a bit of an unbalanced system that does not produce the outcomes that you're you're ultimately looking for in many different dimensions. I like the phrase that I quoted from you in my book where you talked about being radically moderate. And that seems in some ways to sum up your approach both to both to eating and exercise and investing and and much else, right? This uh, it, there is a sort of golden mean aspect to your approach. I think that's absolutely true. You can give credit to God or Annie Duke, and you'd be right in both dimensions. And uh, people think that might be an odd couple to uh, to cite, but I actually think they both have valuable things to teach you. And you know, I think about books and that that uh, Thinking in Bets book that, yeah. that Annie Duke wrote about process and the discipline of your process. And, you know, her word that she, that she came up with in, in that book, which I use a lot, so my colleagues are, are familiar with hearing it, is resulting, where you look at the outcome and you make a judgment about whether your process was good or bad based on the outcome. And that's not true. And it's not the way you do it. Now, if you have a good process, it is often the case that, yes, you do have good outcomes, but you can have a good process. And within that, there are times when you have bad outcomes but you may still have a, a good process. So for instance, getting back to Cal Ripken, well, I don't know what his lifetime batting average would be, but if I'm guessing, I don't know, 275, 285, something like that, that means that only 27, 28% of the time that, that he stepped up to the plate, did he walk away with the, with the hit? Seven out of 10 times he didn't. But in the context of Major League Baseball, whatever process he used to get to where he was successful almost 30% of the time, that's an excellent process. And it's, it's time tested even more by the length and durability of his career where he was able to do it for, for so long. So you can kind of discern that that process probably was pretty good by the outcome. But, but oftentimes when you're looking at things, you're looking at an outcome which you're measuring over a much shorter time frame, and, and to some degree, you're challenged with the notion of separating out luck from skill or the signal from the noise as the, as the statement would be. So again, long-term horizons help you make better judgments about whether you're dealing with a good process or, or not. When you're thinking about how to divide your time up between your family and your work and your, your faith and your love of music and going to concerts and going to sports events and stuff, and also reading, which you do a lot of, reading books and, and, and philanthropy, which you're very involved with. Do you have some kind of filter for thinking about how to spend your time, how to, how to decide, like, yeah, I'm going to do this, or no, this is a bridge too far for me? Sure. Well, one of the filters is, can I do that with somebody? Mm. So I'm going to go to a ball game. If I go with Susan... That, that makes the odds of going to that ballgame much higher. If I can go to that ballgame with Susan and my children, I'm going to go to that ballgame. So th those are not mutually exclusive. And so many of the, many times there's a book uh, to read. Well, I'll, if, if I really like the book, I'll share that book w with my family, with my children. And oftentimes then you can talk about that book over a meal or a cup of coffee or something like that. So the point is try to... Try to find things that are not mutually exclusive. When you're mutually exclusive and you're up against the hard boundary of 24 hours a day, then that, that's a much more limiting factor. And you're going to, you're going to miss and not be able to, to optimize, to use that word in a different sense, 
what you can do as opposed to ones where there, there are overlaps and you, you get a, a couple of different bites of the apple from the same thing. One of the things that, that I guess has changed dramatically over the years that I've known you is, you, you know, you've become more and more important within Markel and wealthier and wealthier as, as you've gone through compounding. And I remember talking to you and Susan, your wife, about your, your deep, cheap, cheapskatedness, right? You, you would talk about how it was painful for you to, to go out for more than one meal a day when you were on vacation, or you could never bring yourself to buy um, food in an airport. And I, I, re- I remember when we, when we went shopping once before dinner, you, you, you drove off in your, in your Toyota Prius to, to Kroger's and you had your membership card that you got you a discount at the, at the supermarket, which is not very sort of master of the universe-ish, flashy, grandiose behavior. And I'm wondering if now that money has sort of really become less and less and less of an issue now that you're a CEO making millions of dollars a year, whether there's any change at all in your attitude to money or whether, whether you're still as cheap as ever, Tom. And I say this with love and affection. Well, thank you. And I appreciate it. And I do need, do need to stop and, and bid adieu on this particular note. The only change that I will admit to is that uh, when, you're, when you're ordering some Mexican food and you order the guacamole, and they say, you know, the guacamole is extra. At this point in my life, I have the guacamole. But there was a point in my life when I didn't. So the uh, biggest change is I am now willing to pay extra for the, for the guacamole. It's worth it, and I enjoy it. So that's almost the only change. You, you've not bought any, any sort of huge holiday home or flashy car or private plane or yacht or anything? No, 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 no. no. I, did, I did end up giving that Prius away to my daughter and passing down a car and Bought a new Toyota hybrid, but uh, not, not the Prius, but a RAV4 this time. But I'll try to keep that for a decade as well. And by one car decade, it, it's fine. Can I ask you one final question before I let one you go? One final question, absolutely. Okay. I want to ask you about your suitcase, the missing suitcase. Tell, tell people, because I've been following this saga with such delight on Facebook for months. Tell us what happened to your suitcase. Well, um, I was trained again by my father about many things. And, and he was in the 7th Army during World War II which was Patton was in, in command of that and, and was replaced and went to the third army, if I'm getting that correct. But the idea of traveling light was, in, was embedded in me in a very, very early era. And my father used to go away for weeks at a time with a single gym bag long, long before that became a sort of popular thing to do. This would have been memories from the 1970s or so. So that was just embedded and ingrained in me and, and almost never, never, never check a bag. But on this particular trip that I was going to be on the road for about a month. I had some business meetings and needed a suit or two and different things. Uh, I allowed myself to pack sloppily enough that it did not go in one single bag. And I ended up checking it. And it ended up being a once in a generation kind of mistake for me. Uh, the, the luggage was lost and just for fun as a travel log. I don't keep a journal, but sort of writing about where that luggage might be at any given point in time uh, became amusing to me and perhaps to some of my friends. And lo and behold, four months later, four months later, I received a, a phone call and I was out of town. And, and normally when a phone call comes in that I do not know the, the name of, of the number, I, I don't pick it up. And lo and behold, the caller did indeed leave a message. So I, I checked the message and he informed me of his name and he was in Frederick, Maryland or something like that, which is three or four hours from Richmond. And he said, uh, I've got your luggage and I'm going to deliver it. So I just wanted to get your home address properly. And lo and behold, he delivered it. He took a 
a picture of the delivery and we got home the, the next day and there it was on my, on my front stoop. And it was just a, a, a long lost miracle that that luggage made it back. So for another 30 or 40 years, I promise I will not be checking luggage. If I have to wear every item of clothing I'm going to, going to use on a, on a trip on the road. I'm going to, I'm going to carry on, but it's a, a once every 30 year mistake. And I like the fact that when it got to you, it had a label that said either urgent or priority on it. It was like a big cosmic joke that they were indeed, messing indeed, with your indeed, head. Indeed, sir. Tom, I know you have to go to another meeting and it's just been a real delight chatting with you. And I, uh, it, it's always really a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you. Good fun to see you. Take care. Be well. All right, folks. Thanks so much for joining me for this conversation with the great Tom Gaynor. I'm sure you can see why he's one of my absolute favorite people in the investment world. He's a top-notch investor, but also such a kind-hearted and decent and good-natured person. If you want to learn more from Tom, you can read about him in some depth in my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, which explores how he's built a powerful competitive advantage by adopting an array of smart habits whose benefits compound over time. I'd also highly recommend reading Tom's annual letters to shareholders, which you can find on the website of the Markel Corporation. They're some of the best investment letters you'll ever read, consistently thoughtful and well-written. I'll be back very soon with some more terrific guests. Next up is Samantha McElmore, who's worked with the legendary fund manager Bill Miller for the last 20 years and recently took over the reins from Bill as he retired earlier this year. In the meantime, please feel free to follow me on Twitter at WilliamGreen72 and do let me know how you're liking the podcast. I'm really grateful for all of the warm feedback I've received from you over the last year, so thank you truly. Until next time, take care and stay well. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.